Uh, when I was a student here in the journalism school, there was one story uh, that was repeated all the time when it came to recruiting students. And I don't know, I know Jackson does some stuff in the journalism program, Dan does, I don't know if you guys have heard this story, um, but one of the main boasts of the journalism <laughs> program here is that uh, being in a smaller market, that's a business phrase we use for places like Missoula, uh, interns can do more things on camera and in production than they would ever be able to do even if you were in Spokane um, at a journalism program because the level of talent they have in there, they don't like interns um, being around stuff. And uh, because of this, one of their claims to fame is they not only teach the theory of journalism, but they teach you how to apply it as well. And so as the story goes, whether it was real or not, it's folklore, uh, at least when I was there, is there is this group of interns who are at CNN um, applying for this internship, and they're only going to select um, a specific amount of individuals, more than who are actually there for this internship. So they're giving them tours of the facilities and of their many newsrooms. And at one point, something happened uh, in an editing room, and an employee came out to the group, and here's these interns who are seniors in journalism, and they said, hey, does anyone know how to edit on this specific type of software? And the only person who knew how to edit was a student from the University of Montana. And so she went in there and edited it for him and came out and she was given the internship right there. And so she was surrounded by students from uh, schools that are more prestigious in terms of journalists, like Northwestern or Columbia, kind of like these purebred schools for journalism. But when the transition came from understanding the broad theory of journalism to doing the personal practice of it, there was a disconnect with a lot of people as to what happens from thought to practice. And I would say uh, this is the hardest part of education at any level, is taking what we're learning, what we're knowing in the context of a classroom, and applying that to what it is we actually want to do. How many times have you, have you been in gen eds and you're sitting here listening to this, you're like, I am never going to use this in my life. And it creates this frustration inside of us. But also there are times where we learn things in our area of, of study, and we're like, I just don't know what to do with this. I get it, I understand what you're saying, but I don't know how to utilize it. The biggest challenge is applying that to our life. And the same is true in regards to the gospel. It's one thing to affirm something like the idea that Jesus saves. It's another thing to understand what that actually means to you. And even if you just think about that phrase, um, whether you're from a Christian background or not, that phrase has kind of become a token of pop culture. How many of you have driven past a bridge, a railroad bridge spray painted with Jesus saves, or seen a mural downtown with it on it, or a weird beaten down car with a bumper sticker, or like the vintage thumbs up Jesus shirt uh, with it on it? Like it, it's this phrase that people say all the time whether they affirm it as true or whether they're just kind of doing it for the sake of nostalgia, we know it, but what does it really mean to you? What does it mean to you when you say things or hear things like Jesus saves? And so what we've been doing um, when we left for break is we were moving really slowly. Uh, we got interrupted by a couple of things. We're gonna get interrupted by a lot of things this semester. Um, Still, moving through the book of Colossians, which was a letter uh, written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae. And last time, way back when, when we met together, Paul was kind of painting this picture of what the Bible says about salvation and about Jesus in really, really broad terms, okay, from the, the highest level. And this is what we looked at last time we were together in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. 
And so the he here in the context is Jesus, and it says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And so, depending upon where you are in life, you heard that, and I'm betting each and every one of you understood the words coming out of my mouth. You saw the syntax and the grammar, and you hear these truth claims, and you can say, I know these truth claims. And then, perhaps, there are those in here who, who consider themselves Christians, and you see those truth claims, and you say, I agree to those truth claims. But Paul was talking about these big general things. God, Jesus uh, created the world. Jesus sustains the world. Jesus is the image of God. Jesus reconciled all things to himself. And then there's this turn in Paul's book where his very next words, which we're going to pick up today, are, but you. He's taking this huge theory of redemption, and now he's saying, this is what it has to do with you. And I think that's a question that a lot of us don't assume. Is what does Jesus have to do with you? And how does this become more than just a piece of information floating around in our brain with everything else we're using that we fail to find as having any sort of actual merit or practice in our own life? So Paul wants to do two things tonight in this book. Is One, he wants us to know what the gospel is. And then he wants us to know when we know what that gospel is, what do we do with it? I see this, I understand it, I know it, but what do I do with this gospel? And this is what we're going to see tonight. Is that our hope is in the work of Jesus, and our confidence is in our faith in Jesus. So those are kind of the two parts. Our hope is in the work of Jesus, and our confidence is in our faith in Jesus. So let's pray. Lord, uh, we are... Uh, Excited to come together uh, as a group of people who um, at least are willing to hear what it is you have to say to us in your word. And so Lord, I pray tonight uh, that as I stand up here and blab my mouth that what is heard is, uh, is, is not this flesh attempt of Tyler to communicate, but it is the words of God that you've given us in scripture that you've told us are powerful and profitable and winsome and good for us. So I pray that tonight um, your Holy Spirit works in our hearts to bring us understanding, um, to bring us emotions that we've never had towards God because we have pictures of God and ideas and understanding of God that we've never had before. So we pray for mercy in that. We humbly submit ourselves to your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So um, in the past, if you have gone on men's retreats, here at GCF, you've gone to my parents' cabin over in Idaho. And if you're there, you'll, you'll notice kind of the layout of the land is there's the cabin, and then there's like kind of a 50-yard slope, and then the lake is down here. So the cabin's kind of like, uh, if, the, if this is math, there's like the slope and stuff, and so there's grounds in between. It's not like a sheer cliff. It's like a glide path cliff. Why is this important in my story? It's not. Anyway, you're high above the dock, um, but there's enough of this. Is this the x-axis? There's enough x-axis uh, to where you can 
stand on the deck and throw a football and try to get it to the dock. And so we were there doing it. Stephen knows where this is going. Um, we were there doing this, and my son was there. And uh, my son, Owen, who at the time was maybe three, uh, was down on the dock with us. Little, you, Some of you have seen cute little Owen, his blonde hair, kind of like bobbing around. Uh, and Stephen is on the dock, and he yells up to our friend. He's like, hey, throw me the football. And I said, Stephen, you better catch the football, because my son is right next to you. And so he was like, I'll catch the football. And so my fr our friend, who was a quarterback in high school, he's, he's way up. And so not only is he, this quarterback, going to be unleashing a ball, but it's going to go with all of the mathematical equations of gravity towards <laughs> my son. Um, and so he throws this, and Stephen is here, and was expecting the ball to come here. My son is here, and this is the new trajectory of the ball. And so what Stephen does, what he should have done, is catch the ball, or option two, move the sun. Instead, what he does is this, and step back. And so I like sprint, super dad style, across the deck, and grab my son, and move him like milliseconds before this cannonball goes right where my son was. And the, like there was this moment where everyone just paused and we had these mixed emotions of both relief and terror. Except for Owen. Owen was oblivious to everything that just happened. He didn't understand the threat, and so because of that he wasn't scared. And he didn't understand the salvation, and so because of that he wasn't grateful. And oftentimes, we have Owen-type reactions to the gospel. We don't know what it is we need to be saved from. We don't know the threat that stood careening towards us from the hands of a quarterback. And we then didn't know or understand how sweet the salvation was that came. And if we don't understand the threat or the salvation, we can easily drift into arguments which sound like this. You do you. I'll believe what I believe, you believe what you believe. But if we understood the threat, no one would sit there and let that hit my son in the head. Oh, and if you want to stand there, that's great. If we understood the threat, we would convince the person of the threat. But if we don't see our condition rightly, if we don't see the problem rightly, we'll never see the gospel rightly. And this is where Paul is going to start today. Is first and foremost, in helping us understand the gospel, he wants us to see this. This is our first point is that the gospel is hope for the hopeless. The gospel is hope for the hopeless. So let's look at what Paul says about our condition and the danger that we were all once in. So Colossians 1, 21 through 22. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, that is Jesus, has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So here Paul, he's writing to these Christians, and so he's not saying, you who are once super duper bad, you criminals, you terrible people, you are alienated. He's going to the Christians, and he's saying, you all were once alienated. You all were once hostile. You all were once doing evil deeds. 
And so we understand the evil deeds part. We, get, we can picture what that looks like. We understand what a hostile mind looks like. But what does it mean to be alienated? It means to be cut off, to be estranged, to be removed from something. And in Paul's prioritization of our problem, he says the most significant threat to us is that we were once cut off from God. And more importantly, you once were or still are cut off from God. In our culture, we love the idea of oneness, right? We want to be one with each other. We want to be in one united cause for good for our world. We want to have a specific aspect of oneness with nature and its need. We want to be one in regards to our romantic desires. But the problem is, is that sin has estranged us from ever being able to find oneness in anything. Because sin prevents us from finding oneness in the only thing we were made for, which is God. God created us to be satisfied with him, and sin separated us. We can be united to one another. We can be united as the church. You can be united as husband and wife. You can be united as the United States. But first and foremost, God created the human heart to have a condition of being united by a right relationship with him. But our sin, this wrongness, these evil deeds make this impossible. We were made for relational satisfaction. We were made for intimacy with God. We were made for belonging and peace, but it is lost to us. And that's because a perfect God cannot allow an imperfect people to be in, our presence, in his presence. Therefore, the problem of your sin is not that it hurts other people, but it's that your sin severs you from the only source of salvation and puts you in the right wrath of God. We feel this tension. Right? We're using terms like alienation, and we're doing this by, we're thinking theological things, looking at this Bible, and sometimes it's foreign to us to understand what this has to do with real life, but we get this tension, don't we? I mean, how many of you have made desires, career decisions, relationship decisions, based on a desire to feel accepted? or be affirmed of having a purpose, or beginning to plan a goal for future satisfaction in something. All of those desires are motives which stem from the problem of our alienation. None of us are naturally content because we know we were made for something more. We know that there's something missing, there's something lacking, there's something wrong. We try to quantify it and say, this is what it is, and we pursue with all of our energy towards that end, and that's the problem of alienation. God made us to worship him. He made us to delight in him, but our sin has separated us from it. And so the result of this is, is that when we feel desires which only God can fill, we attempt to find that salvation in things which are not God because we're separated from him. We experience these desires that are meant to find their end in God, but because we're separated from God, we go and pursue other things. And this produces more alienation. 
We're moving further and further away from what God wanted us to be. The more we desire what God can provide, the more we get further away because we're alienated from him. Sarah and I, when we were first married, um, uh, she had some student debt, and so we made a plan to start paying that off, and uh, we missed a month. I, I forgot what month it is, but for the sake of this illustration, let's say it was January. And so we missed January's payment. Like, we thought we paid it, and we just didn't pay it. So it's not like we remembered it late and then paid it. We totally forgot it. And then February came around, and we went ahead, and we paid February's bill. Because that's what we do, is we were going to pay February's bill. What happened was, is they took February's bill that we paid, meant for February, and they applied it to January. And so now, we had a late fee in Jan we had an initial missed payment in January, met by a late payment, followed now by a missed payment in February. And then April came around, and we paid April's bill. And it took April's bill and applied it to February, so now the missing payment in February was filled by a late payment, but now April's payment, April, March. Thank you. <laughs> April, April's a free month, just free. Um, but what happened was, is it kept every payment we made actually kept compounding our problem. And pretty soon we got a letter from collections. We were faithfully paying. We were doing what we thought was right. And we got a letter from collections because we had had four missed monthly payments in a row. And the irony was, the more we tried to pay the bill, the more indebted we became. And that's the self-perpetuating problem of us being separate from is we feel these desires to find salvation. And so we go and we seek that out. <coughs> but because God is foreign to us, because we are separated from God, we can't see God. We can't see God, we can't know God, we can't turn to God. And so the very desire that God gave us, that we were made to find satisfaction in Him, we take and we pursue in other gods, and this treason just keeps compounding. We desire God, we can't have God, we pursue false gods, we're doing more evil deeds. And that's the problem, is this hostile, separate heart begins to do evil deeds, and it's so much deeper than the problem of how we think of evil. We think of evil as the sinister, maniacal villain in a leather coat sitting in Gotham plotting against Batman. But the problem of this evil, is it shows that oftentimes good actions can be evil things when they're done in separation from God. It's not evil to want a career. It's not evil to want a relationship. But when a relationship becomes the solution to your alienation, which only God can fix, then it becomes evil. And without outside help, we are stuck in eternal patterns of damnation. We are alienated, therefore we do evil deeds. We do more evil deeds, and therefore we are all the more alienated. And that's the cycle of life with sin. Secular philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre made this connection in his own work. He's a French philosopher. Um, in the 20th century, he says this. He says, man is nothing else but what he purposes. He exists only insofar as he realizes himself. This is the important part here. He is therefore nothing else but the sum 
of his actions. Nothing else but what his life is. And maybe this is you. Maybe even inside of the church or on your own outside of the church, you felt this in your life, always attempting to find some sort of belonging, some sort of identity that fixes something, some sort of satisfaction, but never, never able to find it for long. And when you step back and think about it, it's easy to look back and see your life as one track record of meaningless action atop of meaningless action, hoping to find something to stand on. The Bible says even the, res the result is meaninglessness. The problem is so much greater. Because the wages of these actions is death. It's not just a lack of identity, but it's punishment due for your treason on the God who was meant to be worshipped and meant to be in relationship with. But this is why the word gospel has to be more than just a catchphrase for us. This is why the word gospel means good news and endured through 2,000 years to keep the beauty of that word with us. And this is what God did when he stepped in to break this self-perpetuating cycle of death. And we see this good news in Colossians 1.22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. God has, Jesus has reconciled you in his body by his death to present you holy and blameless. So here's the thing. Sartre, that old dead philosopher, was right. You are the sum of your actions. But the good news of the gospel is that it doesn't have to be your actions. It can be the actions of Jesus. That's the gift of God. Jesus lived a perfect life, fully pleasing to God, never being alienated from him because of sin, resisting it, fighting it, enduring scorn for treasuring God over the things of the world. And then he died on the cross so that he who was never alienated, might be rejected before God for our sins in order to bring us back to God, to reconcile us back. You see, our greatest problem in life is not our actions. It's our alienation. It's being separated from God that produces evil deeds. This is an important distinction because if we see our actions as our greatest problem, we can just start changing actions and think that we've done what it takes to find peace and satisfaction, and we could get to the end and realize everything was a sham. But if our greatest need is our separation from God, then we see the gospel in a new light because it's only Jesus who can bring us back to God. You can go read a self-help book and change your actions, but you need Jesus to bring you back to God all the way back, reconciled. Have you ever noticed the biblical words for salvation? They're all re-words. Reconciled, restored, <coughs> redeemed, ransomed. Christianity isn't the promise of something new. It's actually the restoration of something old. It's bringing us back to what we were meant for. We were meant to be with God. And on his cross, he took aliens and brought them back. He retook them, and he presented those who once hostile as holy. He took those who once did evil deeds, and he made them blameless. And that's because on the cross, when Jesus took our sins, he took the punishment for them so that we no longer have them. 
We no longer have this record, which we're, Paul's going to use in later on in chapter 2, this record of wrong, because Jesus died for it. And the result of that is, is that we're holy. Holy is another big Christian buzzword. It just means consecrated, sacred, set apart. And that word stands in such harsh contrast to the meaninglessness and the hostility that we saw in the previous section. Well, in alienation, we were destined for meaninglessness. But when we've been made holy by God, we've been consecrated for something more. We've been given an eternal and an immediate purpose because of what Jesus has done for us. And so as you consider your life here on campus, and you run into people seeking meaning and belonging and to restore something, remember that the greatest good we can bring a humanity so desperate for meaning is restoring the meaning of man by restoring man back to God. Jesus Christ. This is what it takes to be the good gospel of God. This is good news. Jesus takes what is foreign and he restores it. He takes sin which stood in our way and he dies for it. He took something broken in function and he renews it. He took what was evil and he makes it blameless. He takes everything wrong about us, everything wicked about us, everything bent and broken about us, and he bears it in himself so that he can make us above reproach, beautiful, belonging, and of blessing to himself. The gospel is nothing that we do. It's everything that Jesus has already done. But what does this have to do with you? How do you get this benefit? Here's this wonderful truth. And how do you know at the end of the day, when all is said and done, you get there and you're not met with meaninglessness. You're not met with the punishment of sin, but you're met with true joy and satisfaction because of Jesus. This is the second point of Paul's message tonight. Is that the gospel produces true faith for the truly faithful. The gospel produces true faith for the truly faithful. And let's look at what I mean. I'm going to read the whole chunk of text that we're looking at today to kind of hear it in context. So again, starting in verse 21, it says this. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have been made minister. So, if you want to have this, here's Paul's conditional statement. If you want that salvation, then you must have a faith which endures. If you want what Jesus gave, you have to have a faith which is stable, steadfast, and unshakable. I'm not sure if you're like me, but I assume you are. I think we're, we're savvy as a generation, and we're naturally, because of that, pessimistic. I think we're savvy out of our pessimism. We always doubt things, right? I saw on TV the other day, how many of you have seen that like knife sharpener that's like the two blades that like flex together? No one's seen it? So anyway, it's like, okay, some of you, so here's, it's like two metal wires like this, and they run a knife through it, and like, can't do it, because my, my muscles are so big. Um, but it, this way's easy. That's how the human body works. Um, you know, like put it in, they pull the knife out, and it like sharpens it. So they do this thing where they get a credit card, and they like run it through it, and then they take the credit card and like chop a tomato. And I'm like, yeah, right. And then I, I was listening to the radio the other day, and there's this like diet pillar talking about like, all you do is you eat what you want, you eat this pill, you lose 30 pounds in a month. I'm like, that sounds like the Taco Bell diet. 
Um, and we're just like doubtful that any of this will ever work. It's too good to be true. We roll our eyes and say, yeah, right. And it's reasonable <coughs> that someone who's unfamiliar with the gospel and someone who knows full well the problem of humanity, right? There was just a, uh, a former trainer of the U.S. Gymna gymnastics team who was sentenced to 70 to 145 years for sexually assaulting habitually members of the U.S. gymnastic team. And he wrote a six-page letter to the judge asking him to stop reading the testimonies of these women. His sin was too much for him to handle. And he did it. And so you can imagine someone knowing our sinful state, seeing this and saying, Oh, faith. All of this wrong, all of this disconnect, all of this problem, and if we have right thoughts about Jesus, if we say the right things, then it all magically gets fixed. In fact, it sounds a lot like mindfulness. Mindfulness is something you may have heard on campus. It's something that's popular in pop culture and other religious groups, and it's seen as kind of the way to salvation. And mindfulness is when you refuse to focus on the negative, and instead you focus on the positive. Focus on the positive and you'll have a positive life. Envision the future you want. Envision who you want to be. Don't focus on the bad things. Have faith that it will happen and it will end up that true. You want a better future? Think about that future. Have faith that that's going to happen and sure enough, that will follow. But mindfulness is trash. Because mindfulness is just mindlessness. It's not connected to anything of any substance. It's not based on anything. Mindfulness expects drastic things to happen without any connection to reality. But mindfulness is not faith. And faith is not mindfulness. Faith, on the other hand, relies on work. The work of Jesus. Faith isn't wishful thinking that, golly gee, I went to church and my parents are Christian and it's sure bad out there. I sure hope when I get there that I'm saved. I sure hope that my life isn't meaningless. I sure hope that I don't end up in death as all there is. I sure hope I don't reap the punishment of the things that I knew I've done towards other men. Instead, faith is an active commitment to believe that what Jesus did was necessary and sufficient to save you. As one of my professors in seminary said, and is now on a rap album saying it, is faith isn't believing in God. Faith is believing God. Faith isn't just believing that God exists. Faith is believing what God says about us and how Jesus came to fix it and say, that's right, because you're God. That's an adequate assessment of my soul. That's the right provision you gave in Jesus, and I need that. Faith depends on work and Jesus' work, and because of that, we can have faith that our faith is not meaningless, that our faith will not disappoint, that our faith will not drift away into the nothingness that so many other religious ventures in our world will because our faith is fixed on the concrete foundation of Jesus Christ. And the point Paul's making here is if you think you have that faith, if you want that salvation, if you want that restoration to good, peace, and God, you must not just have momentary faith at one moment in time, but an immovable faith for your whole life. 
Paul says that this salvation, this beautiful transformation from death to life, from meaninglessness to purpose, from godlessness to God's beloved, is something that depends, look in your Bible, on continual, on steadfast, unshifting, stable faith. Oftentimes, as we do this, I run into people who say, uh, I've, I've said a prayer once at Sunday school, I'm good. And again, the same professor once told me that I believe in once saved, always saved. But I don't believe in once prayed, always saved. Faith isn't just a prayer at one point. Faith is an active commitment to value, to treasure, and to believe that Jesus was necessary for all things. That Jesus was sufficient for all things. And that idea of sufficiency is something that Paul is forcing onto the readers here in Colossae. Because at the point of Paul writing this letter, there was a bunch of sects who had kind of grown out of the Christian church, and they were saying, we've got a better salvation. Yeah, 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 the gospel is good. That goes good. That cute. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We get it. We love it. Um, but there's something better. There's an additional knowledge that's out there. There's additional practices. There's some feasts. There's some things we could do to and with our bodies that'll bring us a better satisfaction. And you guys, just thinking you got it in Jesus, you're missing the point. There was this intense pressure from them to think that this other false gospel was the true gospel. And Paul's coming to them and he's saying, don't move from it. Don't get shifted from it. Don't be shaken from it. Don't leave it behind for what seems better. And he says this. He gives these three kind of thing, uh, fields of authority. He says, you've heard it. He says, it's been proclaimed in all the earth. It is the only gospel to have gone forth that is true. And it saved me. And you respect me. You can argue about your experience, but I have my experience too. This has saved me. And it can save you. But it's no good to hear it. It's no good to say it. It's no good to see it if you don't believe it. It's no good to surround yourself with it unless you have faith in it. There's a, a football term that's used a lot when it comes to evaluating kind of the effectiveness of defensive players. And that's that you don't necessarily, if you're a defensive lineman, you don't necessarily have to sack the quarterback you just have to do what? 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 Stop paying attention. You <laughs> no, what are, I know. I don't know what else is where you're supposed to You just have to move them off their mark, right? Well, it would be nice to be exactly. Well, it would be nice to be exactly. <laughs> that ruins my illustration, Reginald. Um, you just move them off his mark, right? There, there, there's this phrase like, all you got to do, like to, to influence a play, you have to move the quarterback off of his mark. And so what happens is you come, they come at the quarterback, and they pressure him because the play is set where this quarterback gets to a specific point, and when he's at that point, at that specific time, that's where the play is designed to go like, boom, we got points. That's how it works in football. You score points. And so what you want to do is if you can move him off of his mark by applying pressure, the play begins to develop. Or not to develop, to what's the opposite of that? Alteriorate. Deteriorate. Deteriorate. Like alteriorate. Sounds not right. Deteriorate. You move the quarterback off the mark, and the play begins to break down. And in the theater of our life, the goal of the devil is to move us off of our mark. He wants to make you think that pressure is coming. It's coming fast. It's coming hard. And there is no way that that line is going to hold. You better move. You better find something else. You better find a better hope, and you better find it fast. He wants to make our faith uncomfortable. 
and he wants to make our faith seem unfashionable. Don't do this, it requires you to pray. Who wants to do that when you can just go hang out with friends? Don't do this, it requires you to not do some of the things your friends are doing. It's uncomfortable. Don't do this because people think it's silly. You've missed out. It's unfashionable. But that's exactly how we got into this mess. God made Adam and Eve in the garden, and he gave them the most perfect creation. God himself, the perfect of all perfects, looked at it and said, this is good. This is good. And you can have everything. Eat it. Enjoy it. Take pleasure in it. Except for that one tree. Because if you eat of it, you'll die. And so the snake comes. He begins to twist what God says. He casts doubt on it. And he says, he says you're not going to die. You'll be better off. God's holding out. God's got, God's got something good, and he doesn't want you to have it. Eat from the tree in life, we'll get better. And when Satan had effectively shifted Adam and Eve from the truth that God given them, they quickly forgot the beauty of what God had already spoken to them. And if we're not careful to remember the gospel which saves us, if we forget what Jesus did to save us and who we were once were, then we allow ourselves to leave the faith and search for seemingly better things. And I know I've probably said this a lot, and I don't mean it to be a scare tactic, but it's true. Is every year people come into this room seemingly having faith. And years, months pass, life gets hard, opposition gets real, and they've shifted. They get moved off their mark. They fail to endure in faith. They stop seeing the work of Jesus as the most significant thing in their life. And they turn to other saviors. But look at the warnings that scripture gives us. Matthew 10.22 says this. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Hebrews 3 verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you, he's talking to the church, in any of you an unbelieving heart. In the church, there's unbelieving hearts. Leading you to fall away from the living God. 4 verse 11 says this. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, that reward, that, that removal of alienation, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. There is no biblical category for kind of Christian. There's no biblical warrant for momentary salvation. There are Christians who keep their faith, and then there's everyone else. And we know this, because the Bible tells us this. Look at what it says um, in 1 John. Speaking of those who have left the church, it says this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. If you are saved, you will continue in the faith. Your faith will endure. Your faith will be steadfast. Your faith will last. True faith sees the weight of the gospel as the most significant thing, and they choose to endure in all things, because that's true faith. That's real faith. 
And here's the tension of this text, is we can look at this and have the opposite result that Paul wanted to give. We can look at this and we can get paranoid, right? Man, do I have true faith. Is, is what I think about God right now? Like, we see the warning in Hebrews. There are people who think they were saved, who are unbelieving. There are people who thought they were obeying, who are being disobedient. Is that me? But again, this is why an understanding of the gospel is so important. Look back at Colossians 1, 21-22. And I want you to look at the actor. Who's the one doing the work here? And you, who was alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present him holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We were alienated. He reconciled us. We were evil. He presented us as blameless. Ephesians 2, verse 8 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. If we don't understand the depths of how we are saved by Jesus, if we don't see our salvation as something done by God and freely given to us by God through faith, then we will wrestle not only with seeing the Bible as central, but as seeing the gospel as our certainty and our confidence. For instance, I was talking with my wife once, that's what we do, and uh, we ask weird questions like, what's your worst fear? And uh, this is like not like fear factor things, but like really, what, what, what's your greatest fear in life? She said, I don't know if I told this part to you guys, but she said um, her greatest fear is that uh, Owen would die. We had a problem pregnancy at that point, which God has blessed us with. I hope you all get to see Ellie soon. Um, and uh, she said, it's not that Ellie would die because I haven't, I haven't held her. I, have, I don't know her. But Owen, our five-year-old, I've, I've known him. I've seen him grow. I've held him. I've comforted him. But that Owen would die is my greatest fear. And there's like Abby in the middle. No one cares about middle child. Um, <laughs> But this was her fear. And she said this to me. She said, if that were to happen, I don't know what I would think about God. I don't know if I could make it. And this is why this passage is beautiful for us. Because we can come and say, if you are saved, if Jesus has done this work, then you have nothing to do but to endure. You will endure because Jesus reconciled you. You will endure because Jesus purchased you. You will endure because you have been saved by the powerful working of God. And it is not up to you to do it. It is up to you to believe it, to, to, to labor in that faith. Faith is not the easy thing. Faith is the hard road of trusting in someone else over and above your own works. It doesn't mean that you won't have to fight for it. It doesn't mean that it will always be easy. It doesn't mean that you will be able to do it on your own. But when the allures of the false hopes and false gospels ring louder and shine brighter in our hearts, we return to the hope that saved us. And we say, this is my gospel. This is my hope. This is my Savior. And nothing can take that from me. But it's when that faith is a true faith that we are so quick to turn from it. And so I want to challenge you to 
fight for a hard faith. To fight for a faith where we can face trials with confidence and say, I have an enduring faith because it's based on the real works of Jesus, which has saved me. And we can say, this is sufficient because only Jesus can bring us back to God. It's only that gospel, it's only that faith that solves our greatest problem. To take those who are hostile and make them holy. To take those who are guilty and make them blameless. Because Jesus is the only Savior who died to fix our only problem. Man, what a gift we have in our faith. This is what Paul's going to do. He's going to take this faith here, this, this faith he's calling us to have in the hope of the gospel, which is stable, steadfast, and unwavering. He's going to pull it down through the rest of the book. He's going to say that thing that you once thought was this like great theory, but what does it mean to you? I'm going to tell you what it means to you. We're just going to talk about what it means in terms of your employment, in terms of your relationship, in terms of uh, those who are around you, in terms of what you do at church, in terms of how you think about yourself being involved in a community. He's going to make it deeply practical for us, and he's going to cause us to be captivated by the hope of the gospel. And that's what I want GCF to be. I want this to be a community of believers helping believers be established in the faith that saves them. We want to know the gospel deeper because we want to find together the great joy of what it restores to us. The author of Hebrews also says this. This is our goal together in Hebrews 6, verses 11 through 12. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So you may not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises that are in Jesus. So here we are at the beginning of this new year, and kind of the GCF year is broken up into two things. We have the fall, which you guys, you guys endured through that. So if you can endure through the fall, you can endure everything. Um, and, and, and the fall is this kind of like outreach and evangelism. We want to share the gospel. It's already did that Bible study. It's already saw us at welcome feasts. Um, and now what we want to do is we want to continue that evangelism. We want to continue reaching new people. But for those who are with us, this is where we shift gears into equipping and into establishing in the gospel. And so the reason we're ramp ramping up our Bible studies is because we want you to not just be familiar with the theory of the gospel. We want you to wear it deep into your hearts. These fall ret or spring retreats that are coming up, we want you to wrestle with that gospel at a practical and personal level. So I want you to do um, two things as you leave here. I want you to write it in your notes and think about it in your prayer time. Are you guys doing prayer group still on Tuesday nights? Do we know? Yes, thumbs up. Um, and I want you to pray about where you can help others. So as we want another, just think of people who are in here. If you go to Sovereign Hope, who else is in this demographic at Sovereign Hope? How is it you can help others grow in the faith? Have that confidence that Paul is talking about here. And then I want you think about how it is that you can grow in your faith, how you can have a greater confidence in the gospel. When we do that together, we're going to greater rejoice in what Jesus has done for us, because it has saved us, it is saving us, and it will continue to save us, because our faith is what we have to be saved by our great God. So let's pray.
faith might be one of the most misunderstood um, aspects of Christianity. And yes, the most central aspect. Because Jesus did a beautiful and wonderful thing for us. But if that beautiful and wonderful thing did not produce enduring true faith, then it wasn't sufficient. Oh Lord, but your salvation is sufficient. For your salvation has gone out to the edges of the earth, and it is bringing many to salvation. It is persuading souls and swaying hearts out of alienation and hostility to the beautiful salvation of God. And if that is true in our hearts, then we will continue to believe when the times are tough. We will continue to believe when the, uh, the, the, our, our peers are telling us there's something better. We will continue to believe when our families even begin to push back against what is in our hearts. And we will do that because you have purchased us you have reconciled us. And so we will believe the unshakable hope of the gospel. We pray in your name. Amen.